You're listening to the Journey to Impact Fireside Chat series with Gino Borges, curator of the Poetry of Impact, a platform for supporting the collective inquiry into deep impact. As a part of the Poetry of Impact, the Journey to Impact series brings life to the ups and downs on the path of impact, illuminating the interior journey of the hearts and minds of today's top leaders in impact. Here, you'll hear the intimate stories of those who push forward to overcome self-limitations and societal barriers, to co-create a world where one day all people and planet can thrive together. If you'd like to read this episode online or would like to hear other episodes of The Journey to Impact, please visit www.poetryofimpact.com. with the Journey to Impact series. I'm glad that you're joining us today for Laura Callanan, the founder of Upstart CoLab. Upstart CoLab uh, connects impact investing to the creative economy, creating opportunities for artists to innovate and to deliver social impact at scale. Laura chairs the Global Giving Foundation, advises Shift Capital, and is a member of the British Council Creative Industries International Council. Previously, Laura was Senior Deputy Chair at the National Endowment of Arts and Associate Director of the Rockefeller Foundation. Welcome, Laura. Glad to have you. Glad to be here, Gino. Well, take us, take us to where you're at like right now in terms of briefly discuss the location, both physically and psychically, and sort of touch on the current moment for you in terms of the coronavirus. Right, so we are speaking in March of 2020, and uh, it's about two weeks or so into the state of New York's uh, mandate that people self-quarantine and stay at home and social distance and all of those things. Um, I am lucky enough to be in Columbia County, New York, a couple of hours north of New York City. I split my time normally between New York City, Manhattan, and uh, Germantown, New York. So spring is coming up here, which is uh, very helpful at this moment because obviously we're all a bit uncertain about how long this will take, what lies ahead, and not only what the health and social implications will be, but what the economic implications will be to a global pandemic. And uh, I'm lucky for, and, and grateful for my yoga practice and the ability to be able to walk outdoors since I'm up here uh, in the in the beautiful nature. Uh, that's helping a lot at the moment. For sure. And now take me to how you're envisioning Upstart uh, collab coming out of this and seeing this as a potential opportunity um, and to animate, um, you know, the world that we live in. Uh, both from a healing perspective and so forth. And maybe a part of that answer is just to reframe what the intention and the inspiration originally was for um, Upstart CoLab, but then how is it going to meet the moment as well? So creative people solve problems, and that's something that we believe very deeply at Upstart. And we're disrupting how creativity gets funded by connecting impact investing to the creative economy. Obviously, right now, the third week in March 2020, we're at the relief stage of the pandemic, where it's a, it's a health response, uh, it's a safety net response from an economic perspective, 
people are very uncertain about what's coming next and how long this this uh, moment will last and then what will follow the, the moment that we're in now. So the relief phase is, is not necessarily the moment that most impact investors are able to engage. This is a moment when philanthropy is engaging, government's engaging, but in the conversations that I've already been in with impact investors, we're all starting to think about what comes next. What does the recovery phase look like? And then what happens in that longest term? Uh, how do we continue to build and develop the community, the society that we wanna be part of? And what's the role that impact investing is going to play in all of that? So immediately I'm, I'm thinking about how to uh, support our friends at places like Nonprofit Finance Fund, which, are, which is administering a loan fund for arts organizations in the New York City area to help them navigate through this period. Uh, we're talking to the portfolio companies and the fund managers who are in the landscape, the pipeline that Upstart maintains of more than 150 investable opportunities in the creative economy seeking impact investment to grow. So we're checking in to see where, where our entrepreneurs and fund managers that we know best, how they're uh, navigating this moment. Uh, but we're starting to think about the importance of ensuring that we don't let a good crisis go to waste and to position the, the larger endowed arts organizations as well as the scrappy creative economy entrepreneurs to start to be part of the recovery. Uh, and the long-term growth that will happen after this pandemic moment is, is concluded. Take us to what you see as the vision. When, when you talk about not letting a crisis pass in terms of seeing as an opportunity, I mean, what would be the ideal situation for um, Upstart Collab to actually play, you know, two to three to five years from now as a result, what would like when all of a sudden you're taking those nature walks and hikes, inevitably there's moments of imagination, of impact imagination that, that's occurring, like, wow, this is what's possible. Well, we were prepared in uh, two weeks from today to convene 10 museums from across the United States for a two-day conversation about mission-related investing. We had uh, the museum directors and their investment committee chairs committed to come and spend 48 hours basically going through an impact investing boot camp. This was going to happen in Terrytown, New York, hosted at the Rockefeller Brothers, hosted by the Rockefeller Brothers Fund. Uh, and this was going to be a pivotal moment because none of the institutions that we were bringing together were are, are yet doing mission-related investing. But museums in the United States have $40 billion in their endowments, or they did before uh, the, the pandemic started to affect the stock market. Obviously, as, as mission-driven organizations, as value-driven organizations, we think it's important for cultural institutions to start to think about how to align their financial wealth with their purpose and uh, their potential as community leaders, as anchor institutions, as, as stewards of our culture, uh, and as community meeting places where people come together. So it was very exciting to us that we had folks from major museums across the United States willing and eager to learn about the potential to use their endowments in a new way. And now we have this interruption, this disruption. And obviously we, we've all been reading, we know that the museums and the theaters were among the first institutions, the public meeting places that have been closed down to, to protect people's health. Uh, we know that 
this is very costly to, for these institutions. There are already talks about significant staff layoffs among the museums in New York City, for example, and elsewhere. So how do we revive this conversation with these endowed cultural institutions in two or three or four months at a moment when they are going to be already feeling under a lot of financial pressure and constraint? It's one thing to engage folks in a conversation about aligning their capital with their values when they have felt the benefits of a multi-year bull market. It's going to be a different conversation at this at this moment when people are really feeling constrained in terms of where their where their portfolios are. But how do we use this fact that we've all had to slow down, quiet down, be at home, be with our families, uh, not be able to engage in our communities in the way that we're used to? How do we take this as, as an opportunity to say what's most important and uh, why we should be focusing on those things that are most important and how we should all be reaching back into whatever resources we have and using those resources as part of this recovery phase and what comes next. Uh, the cultural institutions are looking for support, not just from their usual donors, but from foundations and government on top of that. And so I think it's fair to expect those cultural institutions with more means to look for ways not to give up financial return, because I don't believe that's necessary within impact investing, but to align the capital that they're going to be putting to work anyway uh, to cover operations and uh, cover long-term growth, make sure that that capital is really aligned and invested in their communities and in the things that will keep us healthier, um, more resilient and uh, moving forward in a constructive way. What inspired you originally to actually start connecting the dots between impact investing and the creative economy uh, versus sort of the conventional finance world financing the creative economy? And I think you have a more expansive version of creative economy than probably what most people would conventionally think of it as. Well, there are three. If, if we're allowed to have three aha moments instead of simply one aha moment, I guess I guess I would say that there were three three experiences that really came together for me to uh, bring me to this to the place of, of launching Upstart. Uh, one was a conversation I had in about 2010 with a guy named Jim Houghton in New York City. He's, Jim was the founding artistic director of Signature Theater Company, an off-Broadway theater company in New York. And um, I'd known Jim at that point for 15 years or so. Uh, my late husband was a playwright, Romulus Linney, who was the inspiration and the founding playwright of Signature Theater. So I'd been following Jim's journey from the very start of the theater. Uh, and we were meeting and having lunch and he was talking to me about what was coming next at Signature. They had just broken ground on a new three theater complex. Frank Gehry, the architect, had designed the interior of the building. They were uh, expanding from one theater to three theaters. They were taking a large portion of the theater footprint and 
defining that as a 7,500 square foot city green in the middle of Manhattan. This is how the lobby was going to be used, a space that you could come into not just you know the half hour before a performance, but 12 hours a day, seven days a week. You were, the lobby was going to be open to everyone, whether or not they were coming to see a performance. You could use the, the free Wi-Fi, the clean bathrooms, go to the cafe. Uh, it was really trying to be this, this community green in the middle of, of Hell's Kitchen. Uh, Jim was talking about how our, the programming was going to expand. Uh, he was describing uh, the, the support that the city had already contributed to this project. It was a real public-private partnership. He was talking about all of the all of the, the the exciting things that were about to happen for this this theater. And at the moment that we were having this lunch, I was a consultant. I was working in McKinsey and Company's social sector office. Uh, I was working with a, a, the Skoll Foundation, which is all focused on social entrepreneurship. And Jim's talking, and I, I heard these words coming out of my mouth. I'm like, Jim, you're what they call a social entrepreneur. And then I said, but nobody calls you that because you're working in the arts. And you don't call yourself that because you're working in the arts. But take it from me, I'm this highly paid McKinsey consultant. I know this stuff and this is what you are. You're what they call a social entrepreneur. And I left the lunch scratching my head thinking, okay, if this guy were not a friend and if I hadn't known him so well for such a long time, would I be putting Jim Houghton in the same category with Wangari Maathai, Muhammad Yunus, Wendy Kopp, Paul Farmer, all of these iconic social entrepreneurs. And if you objectively looked at Jim's accomplishments, and, and he made the grade relative to these iconic social entrepreneurs. Does that mean he's the exception that proves the rule, the only person working in arts and, and the creative space, uh, the creative sector who is thinking about their community, about uh, long-term planning uh, for the city that they're part of, about how to you know do more than simply entertain people? Or are there a lot of Jim Houghtons? Are there a lot of creative social entrepreneurs out there and are they being completely overlooked and underestimated? So that was the first thing that got me really thinking about this. Um, I've been lucky in my career to work at phenomenal places, the Rockefeller Foundation, the United Nations, McKinsey Social Sector Office. Uh, and in all of these places, I've been surrounded by really smart, dedicated, hardworking people, but they've been people like me. They went to business school, they went to law school, uh, they have a PhD in economics, you know, that, that kind of a background. And increasingly over the years, I've heard the conversations move to um, how can we bring more creativity to solving the world's pressing problems. They're not saying, how can we bring more money? They're not saying, how can we bring more technology? They're saying, how can we bring more creativity to solve these problems. But when I look around the room and they're all people with my kind of background and orientation, that those really creative minds are missing. And so that was another thing that just kind of motivated me. If we know that we need creativity to address these issues, are we missing out if we don't bring in the artists and the designers and the chefs and the, the these folks who just, they, they think and they tick in a different way. And then immediately before launching Upstart, I was in the Obama administration. I was the senior deputy chair of the National Endowment for the Arts. And from that perch, I had a very clear view of the economics of the creative sector in the United States. Uh, as people know, because it's often, you know, annually, it seems to be in the news, the budget of the National Endowment for the Arts, it's not that much. It's about $155, 157000000 million. That's our federal arts budget. Uh, 
Philanthropy for the arts is about $20 billion a year. 5% of all giving in the United States goes to the arts. So that's great because we just went from millions to billions. So we're moving in the right direction. But there's $12 trillion of impact investing capital, socially focused capital that's out there investing. And what would it take for the creative sector to get some small portion of that $12 trillion to uh, bolster federal support and philanthropic support for creative work? Uh, and, you know, so the old joke is, um, uh, you know, why should people who care about the arts care about impact investing? Because in the words of the great American bank robber, Willie Sutton, that's where the money is. And for some reason, up to this point, while impact capital has paid attention to so many important things, the environment, uh, education, gender equity, inclusion, all of these things that we all value and that we're excited to bring more resources uh, to, to support these issues, for some reason, the creative sector has been overlooked. Uh, and so my goal is to connect impact capital to those activities connected to art and design and culture and heritage and creativity. We've identified 145 industries, 145 NAICS codes that represent the creative economy. We've have, have uh, boiled that down to five main categories of ethical fashion, sustainable food, social impact media, other creative businesses that don't fit in those first three buckets, and then uh, what we call creative places or real estate projects connected to the creative economy. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm interested in the translation process for you and where sort of the current struggle in terms of translating it. Like, so to me, this feels obvious. Um, but I come from a, a philosophy background and I blend it with finance. But if somebody is sort of trained as a quantoid and is, is sort of like locked and loaded in the matrix and using hardcore measurement metrics and all this stuff, um, how do you sort of get the buy-in and translate it? Like, I mean, what kind of um, you know tools or uh, mindset or uh, places are you trying to like I mean what do you need to do and feel to actually get people sort of to move to consider these ideas this isn't different than anything else that's happening in impact investing these are businesses that are starting and creating jobs and growing employment opportunities these are businesses that are uh, wealth building opportunities, ladders to economic prosperity for entrepreneurs who are often overlooked and underestimated. In our uh, research and, and work to date, we've noticed a strong correlation between women entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs of color starting businesses in the creative economy. Very interesting. You know, the hypothesis is the barriers to entry are lower. You don't need a PhD in electrical engineering from Stanford or the same level of startup capital to begin a business in the creative economy as you might for something in the tech space. Um, these are the fundamental building blocks of sustainable communities and, and part of the comprehensive community development agenda from the beginning. Part of our work has looked at how Community Reinvestment Act lending has supported creative places and creative businesses over the past 20 years. So there's nothing about what we're talking, nothing about what we're doing at Upstart that is um, unusual or uh, significantly radically different from what impact investing has been doing all along. What we've needed to do is 
bring a creativity lens to impact investing, quite similar to what the gender lens investing movement has done to help to bring into view opportunities that are going to be appealing to art lovers, uh, foundations that fund in the arts, endowed cultural institutions, but are also just going to bring into view more high quality opportunities for impact investors, regardless of what their impact goals are and whether or not they have a deep affinity for art and design and cultural culture and heritage and creativity. If you're an investor who cares about the environment and you invest in a sustainable fashion brand, you're going to be backing a company that's doing good things for the environment. If you're an investor who uh, cares about labor, fair trade, quality jobs, investing in an ethical, sustainable fashion company, which is treating its employees well, will help you achieve that impact goal. If you're a gender lens investor, the vast majority of workers in the garment industry around the world are women. So again, investing in an ethical, sustainable fashion company will help you achieve that impact goal as a gender lens investor. So what we- Now, I mean, can you point out some, yeah, Laura, can you sort of identify some examples that we would be familiar with? Um, sort of sort of take it from a high level to like on the ground. Like, I mean, are there uh, some social entrepreneurs uh, a la artists that are currently creating things and sort of maybe dive into a story or two about some real people on the ground actually doing this. And um, so so that we as listeners can sort of feel it uh, just a little bit more viscerally. Sure. So uh, as I mentioned at the start of this call, I'm in the, the Hudson Valley of New York State, and one of my neighbors here is the actress Mary Stuart Masterson, who you may remember from Fried Green Tomatoes, Some Kind of Wonderful, Benny and June, those types of movies. Uh, she moved up here about five years ago. She's got four young children. She continues to work as an actor, director, writer, uh, and immediately they relocated up here from Brooklyn, the family got settled in, kids got into school, and she was offered an opportunity to be on a TV show shooting in Vancouver, the whole other side of the continent, right? Not very family friendly or convenient. So it motivated her to start to think about what would it take to make the Hudson Valley of New York uh, a, a media center, a place that film and TV production comes. And so she thought, you know, she actually rolled up her sleeves and started to make this happen, working with other colleagues and, and partners and stakeholders in the area. Uh, they they realized there were three uh, elements of trying to make a, an economy work for film and TV. One, the first one was making sure there was a tax credit. So it would be financially beneficial to locate your production here as opposed to any of the other half dozen major um, places in North America that attract film and TV. So they worked with Albany, the state capital, to get the tax credit up to 40%. Um, they realized the second thing you needed was to have a trained workforce. And Mary Stewart and a business partner launched a nonprofit organization called Stockade Works, which is training the 21st century film and TV production crew workforce with a focus on women, people of color, and returning veterans. These are great jobs. They pay between $75,000 and $250,000 a year. Great jobs anywhere, especially great in, in this region. And then the third piece is you need um, sound stages. You need certified sound stages where you can do uh, your indoor shooting. So it's a beautiful place here. People come to the Hudson Valley because of the river, the Catskill Mountains, the cute towns, but you're going to need to do some, some things on a sound stage as well. And um, this month, uh, Upriver Studios is launching. It's a women-led, environmentally friendly 
Delaware Public Benefit LLC, which is a, a set of certified sound stages. So that, which is also one of the requirements for qualifying for the tax credit. So here's an example of someone who's solving a personal problem, like many entrepreneurs wanting to be able to live and work in the same place, but she is creating a jobs engine. She is ensuring that the 21st century set is looks different in terms of who's working on it, that it's environmentally friendly. Um, and what she's doing uh, is so well situated here because luckily in a one hour radius of where the sound stages will be, other people who happen to live in the neighborhood include Liam Neeson, Laura Linney, Juliana Margulies, Kira Knightley, Daniel Craig, um, folks like that. So it's a it's the it's the right type of business opportunity in this location, but it's also something that's going to create a lot of uh, real economic ripple effect for the entire region. And what is, uh, uh, so I mean, that's somebody from media, you mentioned food and sustainable food. Um, do you have a, an example of, um, of somebody who's sort of in the earth doing this? I do. So in Phoenix, uh, Arizona, there's Matthew Moore. Matt is a fourth generation family farmer. He's also an artist. He has won the very prestigious and competitive Creative Capital Fellowship. His work has been seen in museums all around the world. Um, as, a, as a farmer, his art making has often addressed topics of sustainable food, where does your food come from, the future of the family farm. He did a series of sculptures of ugly carrots, which were uh, which helped to open the Crystal Bridges Museum in Bentonville, Arkansas some years ago. And so Matt's always been struggling with how to address these questions around sustainable food. He's now teamed up with a Phoenix restaurateur, a third generation restaurateur named Eric Mee, and together they're launching Greenbelt Hospitality. So Greenbelt uh, brings together, Greenbelt Hospitality is making farm to table dining affordable for all of us. So instead of something that you can do twice in a lifetime, they want it to be an experience that you and your family can enjoy twice a week. Uh, the, the accessible, affordable version of farm to table. And uh, the first location where they are opening Greenbelt Hospitality is a public park in Phoenix called Los Olivos. The vision is to bring together a uh, grab and go restaurant, a sit down restaurant, a marketplace for locally produced artisanal food products, um, an art gallery an education space. And sitting next to all of this is a two acre organic farm with a full time farmer. And this is in a public park. It's accessible to everybody. The price point on the menu makes it accessible to everybody. And it's a it's more than a restaurant. It's it's more than a public art installation. And it's the sort of thing that only a creative person who is an entrepreneur would imagine putting together. For sure. Now. Not only is your um, organization meeting the moment and you've talked about, uh, you know, before this crisis, um, a few examples where people are doing this, but um, it's not easy work trying to coordinate people and projects. Um, it can take a long time, take a lot of money. It can take, um, let's say, a lot of um, hanging out with uncertainty and trying to feel how to sort of navigate, um, you know, with Braille. Uh, you know, I mean, to some extent, it, it, it can be somewhat challenging. Curious about how you sort of not only stay centered, 
but to stay committed during moments of like immense uncertainty and where things are just sort of cloudy and yet you sort of know that decisions probably need to be made. Like, I mean, how do you go about doing that? Yeah, that has been actually a very uh, interesting and profound personal learning for me in this experience. I was with a set of MBA students about a year ago and, you know, we talked about impact investing and creative economy and all this sort of stuff. And at the end of the session, the question was, do you have career advice or to the, to the students here? And um, my career advice was, if you think you're going to, if you think you're, you have it in you to be an entrepreneur, don't wait till 50 to test it out and try it, uh, which is what I did. Uh, you know, I'd spent most of my career at very large institutions, always, I think, is a little bit of a maverick within the safety of a large institution. And it's different when you are uh, a small institution and you're, you've got a big idea and you're trying to push that forward. Uh, I have learned to be to be more um, uh, comfortable with uncertainty than I ever have in my life before. And one of the things that I've kept in mind is the the principle that James Carville, um, and I, I'm sorry, I may be, you're going to know the story, but I may be screwing up the name. Um, <laughs> this is the, the uh, officer who was a prisoner of war during the Vietnam War. And when asked by um, Sorry, you can see what, what confinement does to one's memory. Um, the Stanford guy, Jim, who does a lot of business books. Mm, I wouldn't know. I actually don't read too many business books. Well, you, <laughs> I mean, intentionally. No, you would know if I if my memory were a little bit better, you would know who I'm talking oh, about. Oh, yeah. Um, so the question was, uh, how did you get through the prisoner of war camp and get back home when so many of your fellow um, uh, officers and, and enlisted did not. And, and the, uh, the answer was, I always maintained the expectation and the hope that I would be getting home. So I held out that long-term optimism, but I was incredibly pragmatic on a moment by moment, day by day basis. And that the people who didn't make it home were the ones who were um, only holding on to this notion that that everything was going to be okay, and would set it, you know, the, this very positive expectation that we're going to be home by Christmas, and then Christmas would come, and they weren't home yet, and that would be so heartbreaking that at a certain point the the despair set in, and that became overwhelming. But the people who were able to make it were the folks who were um, able to hold out that that belief and that certainty that whatever form it took, it was going to work out, it was going to be okay. And then we're like rigorous about how to get through each individual day um, to make sure that that future was possible. And so I think I'm learning how to uh, believe in the big idea. One of the, the things at Upstart is that we're really focused on this mission of bringing impact investing and the creative economy together. We think that we can make a contribution to having this actually happen, but if someone comes along and is able to do this better, faster than we can, um, from a mission perspective, that would be a success. And so there, you know, we, we look forward to that moment in the next couple of years where uh, Upstart Collab doesn't need to be here 
because as a field builder, we've set the stage and started to catalyze this, this field. And others who can come in as fund managers, as anchor investors, as uh, example, uh, first out of the gate, successful entrepreneurs, that all of those folks will be here and this, this space will, will pick up speed on its own without our continuing to nurture and, and care for it. Thank you so much. We're here with Laura, excuse me, um, Laura Callanan with from the Upstart CoLab. Um, Laura, I want to thank you for actually doing um, this impact work um, to connect the world of money with uh, the creative economy. Uh, you have so many numerous examples of stuff that's actually occurring as a result of your work. Um, your last response is very encouraging uh, to me and um, I can tell that's not about you. You're like, I mean, you're willing to surrender this whole project of like somebody has a better idea or a more efficient way of moving along the mission. So um, it takes a lot to get there. So I, you know, I know you're doing a lot of uh, work on yourself as a result of being able to say that um, out loud because a lot of us uh, just being human sort of take a very proprietary type of um, hold on, on, you know, on our work. And, I always feel like that's part of our work in impact is to constantly be letting go. Um, I actually think that that's one of the graceful um, benefits, unlike the conventional sort of business world, uh, is, is that the impact space is um, very collaborative and very sharing and very open um, for the most part. And so for you to be able to contribute to that collective effort in your particular uh, way is very special. So I want to thank you for joining us today. Thanks a lot, Gina. Thank you for listening to The Journey to Impact. If you enjoyed this episode, help us spread the word by subscribing to this series on Apple Podcasts and sharing with your friends on your favorite social media platform. For a preview of our previous or upcoming episodes, visit www.poetryofimpact.com.